All right, welcome, welcome, welcome. So I'm gonna hit record now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a fabulous episode of My Orgasmic Life. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Gaia Morissette. And I have one of one of the loveliest people I know. <laughs> She's so delightful. Every time we spend time together, it's always like, wow, that's such a great conversation. So she's come back onto the show. And today we're going to talk about pregnancy and herpes. So my fabulous guest, you want to introduce yourself, what you do in the world besides being pregnant? Yes, besides being pregnant right now, that is encompassing the majority of my life and my mind right now. But yes, I, I do other things other than grow humans. <laughs> this is the first human I've ever grown, the first pregnancy I've ever experienced. So sometimes those are one in the same and sometimes those are separate. But yeah, very first pregnancy and human that I have cultivated, curated. I am the executive director of the STI project. And I actually, I should start with my name. My name is Janelle Marie Pierce. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And yes, I run the STI project, which is an advocacy and education platform and website all around STIs. I'm a, a certified sexual health educator who specializes in the niche of STIs and STDs. And I'm also the spokesperson for Positive Singles and an adjunct professor. So I wear a few hats, but really all of my work centers around human sexuality and STIs and STDs, sexually transmitted infections and diseases. And I'm also living with genital herpes. I've had her herpes since I was 16 years old which is part of my why, what kind of motivated me to get into this line of work. And I've been doing this now for almost a decade. And um, that is what I spend my the majority of my time talking about is a very taboo subject that doesn't get a lot of airtime. And so I'm working to change that to create some acceptance um, and awareness and education all around the subject. Which is what I just love supporting the work that you do because it's so, so important. Okay, so let's talk about, I get a lot of, lately I've been getting a lot of questions about having herpes and pregnancy and how do they overlap and uh, I can't answer those questions, so that's why I have you on the show. <laughs> so let's, let, where do we want to start there? Well, maybe starting with... I guess, like, I mean, it's totally understandable that that's, and I get the same same kind of questions. And I even have heard since being, being pregnant, the concern, like, well, aren't you worried? And what about transmitting it? And that's a really high risk. And there's a lot of like sensationalism um, and extreme kind of language that gets attached. And this over-concern is, is what I think I would classify it as, but probably maybe around conception because the assumption is, that you can't even conceive a child without transmitting to a partner. Like my partner, I'm married, I have a husband um, and he does not have genital herpes. He doesn't have oral or genital herpes and still does also still does not. And we conceived a child, which would mean zero barriers um, unless you did like in vitro or something like that. But we did it through regular penis and vagina sexual activity. So. Yeah, he doesn't have it. And so that's, I think, probably one of the first things is like, well, how is that possible? How can you have sex and not transmit it to someone? And it's not just this, I think in the assumption and the misconception and because of the stigma, the idea is that someone with herpes is a walking infection and are just going to transmit their infection anytime they come into intimate sexual contact with somebody else. And that's just not 
how that really works. That's not how herpes transmission works. So let's start there. Let's talk about let's let's talk about those perceived ideas um, and constructs and how like let's debunk some of those myths. So. Yeah, so like herpes is super common because it's a skin to skin transmitted infection, but it's not as easily transmitted as just touching someone. Some infections are, some sexually transmitted infections and diseases you can contract simply by touching someone else anywhere on their body that has the infection. Herpes, however, you have to actually come into contact with the virus and the virus needs to have an entry point for the infection. So it's classified as a skin to skin transmitted infection, but where it gets transmitted is primarily where there are mucous membranes located. Mucous membranes are porous tissues intentionally designed on our body to trap unwanted pathogens. So when they get trapped, then our immune system can fight them and kill them before they have a, a true entry point all the way into our systems. However, with herpes, our bodies can't fight it. Our immune system can't fight it. It can stave it off, and um, but it can't actually kill the infection. So those mucous membranes end up being an entry point for the infection. And mucous membranes are housed in our eyes, nose, mouth, ears. Um, so that's why we see lots of oral infections in those locations of herpes. And then they're also located the entire vulva and vagina is mucous membranes. The urethra um, and the tip and head of the, head of the penis, um, as well as the anus. And so if you are a person with a vulva vagina, you have more surface area. That's why people with vulvas and vaginas um, contract herpes at a higher rate, just because of our biology. And um, yeah, so that's why we see lots of genital infections. And we very rarely see infections in other locations, like on the arms or something. And we do in certain populations like wrestlers, herpes gladiatorium. And that's because what's happening there is that increased intense friction that's happening through wrestling opens up tiny cuts and tears, and then the virus has an entry point. But the skin is actually a natural barrier for the herpes infection, just as it is if there aren't tiny cuts and tears already existing in that location. So that's why we only see that, or really pretty typically only see it in that kind of population in other locations. So, so that's how it's transmitted, which still doesn't answer the question, I guess, of, okay, well, the genitals have all these mucous membranes then. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't then that immediately be, be transmitted, right? If we're trying to conceive yeah. a baby and you're having sex without barriers, then the genitals are mucous membranes and that's a location that's gonna be high risk. And it is, however, what happens when you have the herpes virus is it's not always active on the surface of the skin. The, actually the most common symptom of herpes in general is no symptom whatsoever. People are asymptomatic. And we've heard that word asymptomatic used really frequently with COVID with people yeah. not having signs or symptoms, but they're able to transmit the infection. So what happens is the, the virus never goes away. Our bodies, our immune system starts to develop antibodies and starts to be able to fight it and mitigate it to, to an extent and suppress it but it can't ever eradicate it entirely. So the herpes infection, the virus itself will go dormant in our nerve endings at the, either the base of the spine or the base of the, um, the base of the spine or the base of the neck, depending on which location you have the infection. And either or herpes 
simplex one or herpes simplex two can be in both locations and where it goes dormant just depends on the original site of infection. So if you are engaging in sexual activities, if you're trying to conceive, Mm -hmm. you can, if you don't have an active outbreak, then there's a much lower risk. If you don't actually have like blisters um, or typical, like what is thought to be the typical expression of the herpes virus, then your infection can be potentially dormant and not active on the surface. Unfortunately though, the only downfall with having a herpes infection is that the virus reactivates occasionally and periodically. And when it reactivates, um, that's called viral shedding. And there's no way to know when you're virally shedding and you don't see it, you don't have any signs or symptoms and you could still be virally shedding um, and transmitting the infection to somebody else. But the amount of time that someone is virally shedding is actually quite low over the course of a month. And it depends on which infection you have, which strain, or I'm sorry, which type, type one or type two, where it's located and how long you've had the infection. So this is getting a little complicated. Um, and pause me too, if you have any questions, like if I say something and you're like, repeat or say, you know, whatever. Okay. So then let's come down to, okay. So those are all of the variables that we need to be in consider, you know, considering. All right. Um, is there any other variable of like that you need to be aware of before you make this decision? Well, then from there, knowing that you're not always able to transmit the infection because sometimes it's dormant, but even when it's dormant, it may reactivate without you knowing because through viral shedding, you can do things to reduce the likelihood of transmitting it. So one of, one of the things is just being aware of your body. And if you have any signs or symptoms, not engaging in activities when you have prodromal, which is kind of like the pre symptoms, if you do get active outbreaks, it's oftentimes a tingly feeling and you can start to feel that you might be having a blister erupt. Um, and people who have cold sores, uh, oral herpes oftentimes talk about that too. The same thing happens with the genitals. So that's one, just being very aware of your body, but then you can also do therapy, uh, viral therapy, um, prescription medication and, or over the counter holistic medication. So there's a bunch of different kinds of supplements you could take. Um, and you can take an antiviral, which would be either reactive or suppressive therapy. So you either take an antiviral only when you have an outbreak or you take it every single day. If you take it every single day, it's called suppressive therapy. And that reduces your likelihood of transmitting it to a partner by 50%, cuts the risk in half. So that's what I'm doing. I haven't always though, and I haven't always with all partners. It's just, it's gone. I've taken over the counter stuff too and supplements and things. Um, but right. I was getting active outbreaks and regular outbreaks and they're a nuisance. Mm -hmm. So I was like, let's be done with this and just take a pill every day and et cetera. So that was a choice that I made personally, but everyone each has to kind of assess are the risks. It's a highly tolerated also through pregnancy. It's a highly tolerated, really considered quite safe. Um, and one of the safest of in the safest categories, they like categorize different types of prescriptions and they, place them as A, B, C, D, and et cetera, down the line of whether it's really good and whether there's a risk throughout pregnancy. And so I made that decision based on the literature, 
the research of, you know, is this highly tolerated? Is this well tolerated in pregnancy? Are there risks and et cetera? So I take a prescription pill every single day, um, both to reduce my outbreaks as well as the likelihood of transmitting it to my partner. So that's one way. Um, yeah, and I think those are the considerations really of whether you want to take something to help reduce the likelihood of, your, of the viral shedding of your outbreaks. If you have more outbreaks, you typically are shedding more often and then the outbreaks put you at a higher risk of transmitting too. So it would reduce the, the amount of time in which you could be trying to conceive. Mm -hmm. um, so that's also a consideration. Like if you're trying to conceive and you're looking at your windows, you're looking at your ovulation windows, which I was all about that. Like, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I wanna know exactly when I'm ovulating. I got little test strips from Amazon and like, I wanna do the whole science, the whole thing. And some people are like, let's just see, you know, and that's cool too. It just depends on your personality. But for me, I was like, I want to get all in it and know exactly what's going on. And so, yeah, so I took it, took, took it all like to that next level. And, but you only have a short window technically of each month anyways, through your cycle mm -hmm. when you can conceive. So for me, I was like, I want to optimize that. And if we're going to do this, let's do it. Okay. So then what's the next, how did your body react once you got pregnant? Did it affect, did it flare up? Did it like, cause, you know, with, you know, all the flare ups, like what happened then once you got pregnant? Good question. Good question. Yes. And my shortness of breath, like I'm so pregnant right now. <laughs> so <laughs> even just talking makes me like sweat and everything. And so excuse my body functioning as a, as as we're sitting here for those who are actually watching visually and not just listening and to the podcast. Um, so that disclaimer aside, body reaction. Yeah, some people do, it just depends on, um, I think whether you continue suppressive therapy throughout your pregnancy. Personally, I haven't had an outbreak in um, since before I was pregnant. And so, which is great because when you're pregnant, your immune system is taxed and usually more susceptible to all other opportunistic infections, um, whether they're present, currently present in your body or not. And so you are slightly more likely to experience outbreaks while pregnant, but I have had herpes for a long, long time. My herpes is like 22 years old. My herpes is old enough to drink and go party with us, you know, so... <laughs> My herpes comes out and has a good old time right alongside of us. But really, though, um, my herpes didn't vote for Trump. Just heads up. <laughs> my herpes can vote and drink and do all the things. Anyways, um, yeah, so I actually haven't had. I thought I would. I kind of anticipated. Like, naturally, your immune system is lowered intentionally mm -hmm. because your body intentionally mean, it lowers your immune system so that your body doesn't fight this new, um, this, this fetus that's developing and doesn't like reject it and et cetera. And so you're already more susceptible. So the likelihood of having um, an outbreak or a little bit more than what you're used to, if you've already have as an established infection is higher. But for me, because I'm still taking my antiviral, mm -hmm. um, I think that helps for sure. And I didn't have that experience. And so far I haven't. So Right now, there's no concern about like transmitting through the birth and things like that, um, unless I end up getting an outbreak before before I go into labor and delivery. But yeah, that is that's that's the number one 
number two question I think I get around this is, well, does that mean like how miserable would that be? And that would be earnestly because pregnancy can be quite uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last thing I really want is to have an outbreak on top of all of it. But I mean, you just roll with it. Like it's common to have uh, more frequent UTIs, urinary tract infections, yeast infections, hemorrhoids, you know, pregnancy, it comes with its whole set of bag of like bodily, bodily things that are not desirable. And so you do what you do and there's nothing you can do about it, but yes, you can choose to do some over-the-counter stuff and or um, supplements or prescriptions and stuff too, to also kind of reduce the likelihood that you're going to have a ton of outbreaks. But if you have an established infection, like if if you've had herpes for a long time, the longer you have it, the less likely that your body is going to respond to triggers in the same way that it would have if your infection is fairly new within the last like couple of years. Okay. And uh, so then what about giving birth and the transmission during birth? And that's, yeah, that's all I got. That's the question. (laughs) That's the question. (laughs) I was letting you go because I had to blow my nose anyway. So, (laughs) Um, yeah. So, okay. So now there's a couple of things to consider, like, because there still is a risk and the outcome for when and if a newborn um, contracts herpes can be quite devastating. So I wanna say that with, with full, um, with the full awareness that there is still a relevant risk, but it's not as most assume and it's not there's, there's caveats to this. And so some of it relies around, which I've already kind of been saying a little bit around whether the infection is new or not. The real, real biggest concern um, where there is quite a high risk and where we do see um, the most devastating impact of herpes on um, neonates is when you contract herpes while you were pregnant. So you didn't have it before Maybe you have a new partner, maybe your partner, it might not even be a new partner, but maybe you just got it from your partner while you were pregnant, then the risk is much higher. The outcomes, it's still not super high. It's still quite actually, um, uh, what do I want to say? It's the risk is still quite low, but it becomes quite a big difference in what the potential outcome is because your body doesn't ha- hasn't established the antibodies um, that somebody with an established infection would already have to suppress the virus. And you're not aware that you have it. Usually the people who contract it while they're pregnant have no idea that they just recently contracted it. So they can't do the things to mitigate the risk to the baby. Um, and then it's, then you're also virally shedding a whole lot more because it's a brand new infection. So the likelihood of, if you have a vaginal birth and, Um, and the baby passes through and you're virally shedding at that time is much higher. And so they could come into contact with the virus, et cetera. So there, that is the real big, like need to be aware of cognizant of if you have, if you are trying to conceive and you do conceive, or I guess I should say, if you, if you become pregnant and you don't have an infection or don't have a herpes infection, but you know that your partner does making sure that 
you don't contract their infection while you're pregnant is, is key. Um, that's a really big deal, as well as considering reducing the number of new partners and um, new, yeah, new sexual partners that you would introduce while you are pregnant um, because of that risk that exists. And because most people don't know that they have herpes because they're asymptomatic, herpes mm -hmm. testing isn't routine. So even if you're getting regularly tested, say you're polyam and you're getting regularly tested and you're trying to conceive with one of your primary partners, um, and you do, which is awesome, the assumption might be then that while well, you're testing regularly, there's not a risk, but there, even if you're getting like a full STI panel, you're not getting tested for herpes anyways. Mm -hmm. So being aware of that and knowing that adding a new partner into the mix at that specific point in time would be inadvisable because of the risk that exists of contracting a new infection and how that new infection could severely impact the baby. So, and the, and the impact is severe all the way up to death um, and a really long-term irreversible kinds of damages. So this is where that kind of fear and the sensationalism around like herpes and pregnancy comes from is from new infections that happen while someone's pregnant. But that doesn't happen all the time. And even then it's not a guaranteed like your baby is gonna contract this and it's gonna be a really horrible outcome. It's just that the outcome could be very adverse, is catastrophic, is heartbreaking, et cetera. So it's not something to totally ignore, but usually what people are really addressing and not separating is that the vast majority of people who are pregnant with herpes at that point in time know they have herpes and it's an established infection, like my experience. And so at that point in time, once you have an established infection, transmitting it to the baby, whatever type of birth or labor, um, labor and delivery, it doesn't, the, the risk is super, super low. So the big thing to watch out for and to just be wary of or to consider and to be cognizant of with your body is if you have an outbreak at the time of labor and delivery. And if you do, then a C-section is suggested, a cesarean section, as opposed mm -hmm. to going through the birth canal. Um, the vaginal birth canal. But if you don't, then you can have your baby vaginally, if that's what you'd like to do. And the risk is really, 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 really low that they would contract it. Now I've heard like some people say, well, but don't you still, because there is still a really, really, really low risk, wouldn't it just be safer for everyone who has an established herpes infection to just have a cesarean? But when I think about this from a more logical perspective, because I think what's tempering that kind of viewpoint is the stigma around herpes in general and the fear around herpes and the lack of kind of true understanding around the science from the likelihood. There are so many other risks to the baby, even with a vaginal birth with, with a not with no herpes, that, that, that people still do vaginal births. They still do how do I phrase this, that there's tons of other risks that are more likely, a much higher risk. And that doesn't stop people from still going forward with their birthing plan, with their um, plan to have a vaginal delivery, if that's what they'd like to do. So I think the reason why everyone kind of po posits that 
in that way is because of the stigma around herpes and your baby contracting herpes from you from the sexually transmitted infection that you got and mm-hmm. you and how bad. And when it's like, if somebody made that decision around some of these other risks that we have to consider when we're pregnant, which there's this myriad, this plethora of these risks that all get tested and monitored and things. And people still say, well, what's the likelihood? Oh, the likelihood is still really low. I'm going to still do A, B, and C and go forward with what I, what I've envisioned my labor and delivery to look like and what I want my birth plan to be, even though that there, the risk might exist, it's still low. And there's risks also what's risk, risk mitigation and risk assessment is always really interesting psychologically to me because everyone starts someplace different mm-hmm. on the continuum based on their personality and based on how they view risk, how they assess it, how they view the reward, because with all risk, there's an equal and opposite reward, hopefully. Um, And maybe not, and maybe then that helps with your assessment and your decision-making, but there's risks with cesarean sections as well. So choosing not to have a vaginal delivery because you do have a herpes infection, but you don't have an outbreak at the time, the risk is super low, but you're like, well, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to reduce the likelihood of a risk with my baby contracting herpes. That's not nothing. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't just, dis, I wouldn't dissuade someone from making that decision. I think it's very personal and I support everyone's agency in that process, but there's also risk with cesarean sections too. So you're not exchanging a risk for a zero risk. You're exchanging one risk for another. And I think you have to make that assessment and consider what's the likelihood of problems occurring with a scheduled cesarean section. And maybe it's really, really low. It's also really, really low that your baby's going to contract herpes from you if you don't have an active outbreak at the time. So it's, it's, it's considering what the real true reality is, what the actual risk is, trying to set aside that stigma, that association with if my baby were to contract or have a complication from my sexually transmitted infection, there's not the same kind of fear or pressure or shame and judgment around if your baby contracts or has complications related to pretty much anything else, as long as it's not a sexually transmitted something you could have helped or something you could have avoided, you know, all of these judgments that get um, piled on to this kind of decision-making mm-hmm. doesn't apply to all of the other things that we have to consider throughout pregnancy. Like one I'm dealing with too is um, group B strep is super common. A third of all women test positive for group B strep uh, before they go through labor and delivery. And then you have to consider, do you want to take antibiotics and what's the likelihood of your baby contracting that? And group B strep is a non-sexually transmitted infection. It exists in most of our bodies or a large majority of our bodies just naturally. It's one of the natural bacteria that just coexist. Um, but if the baby contracts it, there can be really serious complications. It's rare, but again, really serious complications. And so then you have to assess, do you want to take and do these other interventions that are suggested or recommended and who recommends them? Who doesn't? What are the outcomes? What's the benefits versus the risk to taking and or not, et cetera. But if, if there is a complication where I was going with that is if there's a complication and a baby does contract group B strep, there's not this shame and judgment attached to it because it's, a, it's viewed as a super common infection that we all have or that many people have. And it's just something that we 
work to reduce the negative outcomes around, you know, but herpes just doesn't have that same kind of mindset. People are like, well, wouldn't you do absolutely everything? And well, yeah, to an extent, but there's also always, there's, there's always a balance there with these considerations. And I love the whole piece around dropping, like everybody dropping into what is that risk assessment for yourself and how do you feel about that? And, you know, really, you know, really leaning into that place that it's for you, like you and your relationship uh, are the important people uh, in this scenario and really dropping into what do we want? What have we done? What research have we done? What are the risks? What are the rewards? What are all this stuff? And then, you know, holding each other and holding in that space, you know, like really staying strong in that space and not allowing that external influence of other people's beliefs and fears and shame and all the other things I think is a, is, you know, what I take away from conversation of the things that you're saying, <laughs> just, you know, don't internalize other people's shit. <laughs> Moral of the story, other people's shame so and projections on yes. what that means. Yes. Yes. And you know, it's, it's actually a really good, I think, um, activity to have to even process to have to walk through because even this throughout the last nine months, because I only have a couple weeks left, um, throughout the last nine months, it's brought my husband and I closer. So to, because we have to make these decisions around our family, our child, what we as best as we possibly can from, from all the education and resources we have access to. And that is different for every people, every, every partnership, every family dynamic, um, et cetera. So I think it's a good, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a good exercise. <laughs> Speaking of exercise and not being able to spell oh, yeah, the stupid <laughs> word, I couldn't even come up with a darn word. It's a good exercise for partners to say, yeah, like how how are we going to exclude the outside world or only utilize and take what is helpful and beneficial and supportive and then to trash the rest. And and it's not easy to do and I've yeah. and, uh, man, it's so crazy how people like with pregnancy in particular, and I knew this, but I didn't know it to the same extent, like as an outsider observer, never having had my own biological children or being pregnant, like I knew of it, but, and I've seen it happen to other pregnant people, but it just didn't set in until it's now happening to me of like how much judgment, how much constant information, questions, in sage advice and uh, unsolicited advice that you're yes. given in the, and it's just, and it's, yeah, it's like exhausting. And it's strange to me. Cause it's like, you don't care that much about anything else in my life, but you are so invested in your opinions around how I'm going to have my baby, raise my baby, birth my baby, like, geez, Louise, name my baby, like all this stuff. It's like, it's, it's just, it is, it's exhausting. And so it's a good exercise for whatever your partnership, however that structure looks, however your, your nucleus, your internal family is going to be um, set up for 
you to figure out how you were going to mitigate that, not even just, not even risk, but how you're going to get rid of all of that noise so that you can truly focus on what is best for you and your family. And I absolutely support people making those decisions for them and saying, literally F the rest of it. And just, yeah. if you have a problem with it, then there's the door, go have your own freaking baby, like do it yourself then. Like, it just it blows my mind. Well, I think we should have, I, I would love to, after you, uh, you know, give birth and uh, are back into the world, uh, I would love to have you back on the show to actually have a conversation about um, people joining in on two things the you know marriage weighing in on people's choices around marriage and weddings and stuff and pregnancy because I recently got married so I've been in the whole like wow there's a whole thing around people perception of what that's supposed to be and how I'm supposed to react and from a societal and I would love to have a conversation with you I can talk about my marriage you can talk about you know, entering the societal norm of pregnancy and how externally from a societal standpoint, um, the adventures that has been, I think that would be a great show. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because there's so much around like how your wedding should be and how you should then act as a married person and whether it fits the timeline and what you're going to do next now, because you know, everything has to happen in some sort of linear way. And yeah. And it's, yeah. I think we should have a great, I think that would be a great conversation. So there's, there's your, there's your little tease, everybody, the audience, there's your tease that our next conversation we'll be talking about, um, you know, and I'm, I'm going to use this language, um, the cult of marriage and the cult of pregnancy <laughs> and from a societal standpoint. Um, and so we're going to have a great conversation about that in our next show. Now, what is one thing, we got to wrap up the show here. What's the one thing that you really, really want the audience to take away around the constructs and the ideas about pregnancy and herpes? One thing we didn't touch on that I think is important to to at least address is contracting herpes after the baby is born. So there's this big risk of like, how are you going to have sex and conceive without transmitting it to your partner? So we covered that. It can totally happen. It's not this big hoo-hoo scary stuff. And like, um, definitely a risk, but you can totally work around that and figure that out. And it's possible. And many people do. And same with birthing a baby vaginally and not transmitting it to your baby that so many people do all the time and um, non-issues and so cool. But there is the risk afterward, if you're someone who has oral herpes, that's a consideration. Do I want to kiss my baby and where? And do I want to allow other people to kiss my baby? And that's been my family on both sides are historical like kissers. I always grew up kissing my mom and dad. I always grew up kissing grandma and grandpa on the lips. And it was just for us culturally was not, that's just how I was raised. That was what we did. But now with this knowledge and how common uh, oral herpes gets transmitted to people through families at young ages, um, but then also can be transmitted to the genitals and then shocks people and then causes a lot of trauma that way. Now we've decided 
my husband and I, because neither of us have oral herpes that we don't want to allow other people to kiss our baby. And I've had, I've received pushback around that. Like what? Like, I want to be able to kiss your baby. And like, well, have your own baby <laughs> so you can kiss it. I mean, it's just so weird. Like I want this good for you for wanting that, but there's other ways in which to show affection. There's other ways in which to show love. And just because it's something you were comfortable with does not necessarily mean it's a good fit going forward for everybody forever. And so I think that that, and we want to be really cognizant of teaching our child consent and, and autonomy around her body, um, etc. So all of those things I think are considerations. And I would not, and, and with the with putting that into the, the frame of if you decide to allow people to kiss your baby, I don't think you're making a horrible decision. And that's not up to me. And what I think is irrelevant and doesn't matter for the reasons that Guy and I just talked about of like, this is you and your life and your family and your child, and you have to make the decisions that are going to be best for you. So I support all partnerships and parents making those decisions, but that's something that we've decided that since we, if we did already have oral herpes, like my husband did, or I did, then I think that would change because the likelihood that they would contract, the baby would contract oral herpes from us would be quite high. Um, so I probably would feel a little less reticent to let others kiss the baby. Like we'll let people hold the baby and snuggles and things like that. And um, a kiss on the arm is different. And on the hand is different than kissing on the lips, kissing on the eyeballs and the eyelids. And people do that. That's actually a sign of love kissing on the eyelids. So if anyone's ever kissed you on the eyelids, that's like a, it's inherent and ingrained and, and it's a, it's a love, a sign of love. Um, but anyways, so I digress. So I think that that's the one area that we didn't cover. That's important to kind of just frame it as you have to make that decision because there's a risk there babies contracting oral herpes at a young age, especially in the eyes, um, can cause some really serious issues, conjunctivitis. And, um, and that's, that's where we're concerned about it as well as just the long-term them being able to make that decision. Um, and they may end up still contracting oral herpes. Two thirds of the world has oral herpes. So it's really common. It's not something that I think is bad if they do. I'm, but I would just want them to be able to make that decision for themselves as best as they possibly can. And um, because I know of the high likelihood, because we don't have oral herpes, we've made that decision around our boundaries and around those kinds of, that kind of touching mm -hmm. as it pertains to our child. But I think everyone has to make that assessment again with the risk versus what they want to, like how they want to move forward with their kid and their culture around their child and how that's going to look. Excellent. That's great. Well done. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I never even thought about that piece. That's so good. Um, so I'm now actually going to go around, not that I hold very, very many babies or kiss very many babies, but I'm now going to be consciously aware of, you know, start asking, so which protocol? <laughs> it's just like everything else with yes. the protocol here, which is beautiful. I, I love yeah. that. That's I that was that's my takeaway. My takeaway is um, you know, instead of assuming, um, what is to ask the parents of what is the protocol around this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's beautiful and that should happen more often. It just we haven't been modeled that behavior yeah. very well. And so it's hard for people to adjust to because boundaries are hard for people. So they naturally like immediately want to feel defensive about it. Like, 
like it's personal and it's really just not, I mean, it's just, it's just trying to teach new behavior. That's that helps and supports long-term overall bodily autonomy and consent and around human sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, so, and that's the thing, like the people who are out there kissing everyone's babies, like no one's doing it with the intent to cause harm, the intent to transmit an infection. I mean, that's not, that's not what's happening. It's really this innocent activity that's not oftentimes considered um, because it's part of our culture, but there's lots of things that have been part of our culture that really for a long shouldn't time. Be, or shouldn't be anymore. I've yeah. exactly. been around for a long time, but baby does not serve us best. So yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the thing I want to leave our audience with is one, I want you to think about what are your own judgments and beliefs and preconceived ideas about the word herpes? Let's just start there. And then I want you to then after that, let go of all of those fears and judgments and, you know, um, do some more research and um, the STI project would be a great place for them to go get some more resources. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, help to release and let go of any uh, preconceived ideas, shame, fear, and, you know, and also to take a moment to look at those judgments that you're carrying one, maybe towards yourself or maybe towards other people. And so I think it's really important as, you know, uh, as an advocate of the world, looking at our own shit and taking responsibility for our own behaviors, that it's gr- it would be a great opportunity for us to release that and take this conversation that we just had and look at all the places that that might be living inside you so that you can release it so that you're not moving forward in the world, contributing to those fears, those shames, those uh, oppressions, or being on the receiving end of internalizing other people's judgments, other people's fears. Um, and so that's what I want to leave the audience with is just take a, take a note, take some moments to just check in with yourself about where those places are. And then the last thing I want to leave the audience with is, again, how can you show up in the world in respecting other people's choices, whether they're the same choices of yours or different choices than yours, it doesn't really matter we all need to start to respect one another cho- one another's choice- choices and ask how, when we're interacting with each other, how can I respect what you need in the world and then ask for what you need in the world. All right. Beautiful. So how can people spend more time with you? So the stiproject.com is my website or I'm on all the social medias at the STI project. So Instagram and Facebook, I spend the most time on at the STI project. Beautiful. And you can spend more time with me at going to my hub of all the fabulous things that I do in the world at GaiaMorissette.com. Don't forget to tip, to tip your hostess, which is me with the mostess. ethical consumption people ethical consumption (laughs) right so you can go to my patreon account to tip me and um i can't wait to hear you hear from you if you love the show tell me all about it and have a juicy day may be filled with consent 
awareness and self-discovery. Bye-bye.